All right, good morning, good morning again. It's enough socialization. It's enough community. Um, please turn with me to the book of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2. We are working our way through the book of John in this series, God in Our Midst, and we're already in John, chapter 2. And man, we are going to talk about something so cool today. Um, but this past Thursday, as our friend uh, Tanya mentioned, for those of you watching the, on, on a YouTube uh, chat, uh, she mentioned uh, this past Thursday um, was what the church calendar calls the Epiphany. It's also called Three Kings Day uh, because it commemorates the day that Jesus was visited uh, by the three wise men. Uh, the word Epiphany in Greek means manifestation or appearance. Uh, so the day celebrates the first manifestation of Jesus um, to the Gentiles. You see, if we're going to say anything about Jesus, we've got to first say that he was a first century Palestinian Jewish man. He was a real man who lived in real history. On top of that, he was and is, we believe that he was and is Israel's Messiah. He was the anointed one. He is the anointed one, the Christ born in the city of David as Israel's rightful king. The thing is, Jesus' ministry may have been first to Israel, but more importantly, it was through Israel that Jesus made good on the promise that God made to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis, that through his people, that through the Hebrew people, the whole world, including the Gentiles, would be blessed. How did he do this? He did this by taking on flesh, the flesh of a Jewish man, and dying for the sins of all humanity. The reason why Epiphany is important is because it shows us that the Gospels paint a picture of a Jesus being for the whole world that God loves to death. The series we're now in is in the book of John, but the, but the title actually doesn't come from John. It comes from Zephaniah who was a prophet writing hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. In Zephaniah, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exalt over you with loud singing. These words were written to an Israel on the edge of exile, but now, in Jesus, they are going to be fulfilled. That's what the book of John is all about. The first half of John's book has been called the book of signs. And they emphasize it. It emphasizes the miraculous things that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. However, John, as you probably know, you might know, that John doesn't use the word miracle. He uses the word sign. The thing about signs is that signs point to something. And today, we're going to look at the first, what John says is the first one of these signs. So look at the beginning of John chapter 2. John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. On the third day, third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, well, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of of purification, ritual hand washing, each holding 20 or 30 gallons of big guys. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, they didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. I always forget whether the bridegroom is the bride or the groom. It's the groom. So the master of the feast called the groom and said to him, God, everybody serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. You know, but you have kept the good wine till now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So um, Amy and I were married on July 19th, 2003. What I remember about that day is that it was hot and it was stressful. We were really ready for the marriage. We weren't really ready for for the wedding. I remember walking up to the altar and like looking out on the crowd and thinking, oh my gosh, all these people are here for no other reason than that we are getting married. And that was just terrifying to me. The idea that all these pe- that people had gathered for no other reason than just that, 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 that me and Amy were doing something, that we were, we were getting married. You know, we were young. There was no denying that. Uh, both of us were 21 when we, um, when we were married. And uh, we, had wisely, we had been wisely advised um, against marrying young by our families. Uh, we had no money. We hadn't finished college yet. And we really didn't have good jobs. On the other hand, we had gone through premarital, like premarital counseling. And, and, and through premarital counseling, we, we came to this realization um, that the fact that we had nothing was actually a net positive for our marriage rather than a hindrance. The fact that we had nothing helped us dedicate everything that we had to each other. When we started our marriage, there really wasn't a whole lot of like me and her. There was really only us. And that helped us grow alongside one another. I, the truth is, I, I don't know who I am today apart from Amy. And, and that's by design. To, to look at me is to say, to get to know me is to get to know her. And to get to know her is to get to know me. That is by design. That is an image of what our relationship with Christ is supposed to be like. When, when someone looks at me, they're supposed to see Jesus. You know? Um, the couple from this story were, were most likely younger than Amy and I were on, on our wedding day. They were, they were probably just teenagers. So far in John's gospel, I mean, this is really something. So far in John's gospel, we have heard this kind of grand scale introduction regarding the creation of all things through Jesus, We saw John the Baptist prepare the way. We saw Jesus call his disciples at the end of chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, we hear him call Nathanael. He says says to Nathanael, truly, I truly, I say to you, you're going to see heaven opened. You're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I mean, that is 
heavy Hebrew imagery right there. That stairway to heaven language, because you know sometimes words have two meanings. Jacob, the father of Israel, sees this vision way back in the book of Genesis of angels coming and going on a ladder or, or a stairway to heaven. He sees this image of a connection between heaven and earth. And don't forget that son of man reference, you know, Daniel fans. Daniel 7 is where we see this grand image of one like a son of man being handed glory and dominion by the ancient of days. So for Jesus to make reference to that stuff is such a powerful way for him to end uh, at the ending of uh, this first chapter of John's gospel. So he is setting the stage. John is setting the stage for something big to happen. And what happens next? He helps a couple of teenagers save face and keep a party going. Now, weddings in this culture would have gone on for days, and and running out of wine would have been a serious social disaster that could have even amounted to legal consequences. This was a shame-honor culture. Hospitality was taken very seriously. Still, there's no poor, no oppressed, no least of these, no lifelong illness that was cured, no giving sight to the blind, no helping the lame to walk. Jesus' first miracle was to point people in the direction, Jesus' first sign was to point people in the direction of joy and celebration, of two becoming one, of new life together. And he thought that the occasion called for the best of wine. He covered the shame, the potential shame that could have happened in this, at this wedding by, by creating wine, by make, turning water into wine. And don't go thinking that he had made some like watered down grape juice that was like barely alcoholic. It is pretty clear that the master of the feast was more than happy with the finished product. It was exactly what the party would have wanted. And John says this, this is the first sign that manifested his glory, that manifested his glory. And did you notice that it, it, at, at this point even, like it wasn't even public. The servants and the disciples saw him do it, but Jesus wasn't performing parlor tricks for the crowd. When the master of the feast tasted the wine, he commended who? The groom. The people left that party feeling better about the bride and the groom than they did about Jesus, and that's how Jesus wanted it. What came from this miracle, what came from this sign, a young couple saved face, and a party was kept alive with top-shelf libation. Look back to Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29, starting in verse 6. Isaiah 29, starting in verse 6, we see, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. 
We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Christianity is a faith of celebration and joy. It is a faith faith of feasting in abundance. Now, is moderation a good thing? It is indeed. Is reckless drunkenness or gluttony good things? No, they are not. Abstinence or fasting has its moment, but that's not the primary way that God intends us to, to fight against the sins of overindulging. No, the primary way that God wants us to fight against the, the, the sins of overindulging is to invite more people into the party. And let me tell you this, church. We have lost our way when it comes to parties. What if Christians were known for the people, known like for throwing the best parties? Oh, you got invited to that party? Oh, that, that one's going to be the best. The grill's going to be gone, and they're going to have the best food, and they're going to have great drinks. And there's going to be laughter and games and kids are going to be playing together and old men are going to be playing horseshoes and it's going to go long into the night and it's just going to be incredible. Why should this be the case? Why should Christians be known for throwing parties like that? Because the church is a community defined by the resurrection. We are defined by new life. We are defined by things that are worth celebrating. And that is why I believe that Jesus used the celebratory occasion of a wedding to perform his first sign. We see this more and more as we dive deeper into the story. Did you notice that the first thing that was mentioned was that this was on the third day? That this may have just meant that it was, the wedding was on a Tuesday, but... but Matters, numbers matter. Numbers matter in the book of John. And, and there has already been several things that point to creation language. I mean, the first words of John's gospel is in the beginning. There were seven days of creation. And did you notice, if you've been keeping track, that John has been marking days all the way through chapter one? The first day was when John the Baptist was questioned by religious authorities. The next day, verse 29, was when he saw Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The next day, verse 35, was when he called the disciples. The next day was the interaction with Philip and Nathaniel. Then at the beginning of chapter 3, we read the third day. So you count those up, you get seven. Now it's like, so, so the first words we see in, J- in uh, John chapter 2 is on the third day. That is like three days later, but this is resurrection language. John has already done several things in this gospel to kind of turn up the volume on creation language. He wants you thinking about creation. And now Jesus is going to perform the first sign of a new creation. I mean, even if you think the number thing is bunk, The theology behind it isn't. John is clearly writing a gospel of resurrection, a gospel of new creation centered on God in our midst, centered on the Jesus, Jesus who is dwelling with his people. So it seems as if Mary, who who by the way isn't mentioned anywhere by name in John's gospel, But it seems as though Jesus' mother was kind of the primary invite to the wedding. Like, you know, that's really saying something, by the way. It's affirming to Mary. Like, you know, I I was at this wedding. Jesus was also there. You know, can you imagine going to a wedding? Like, yeah, Jesus was also there. But anyway, 
it would appear that, that she was in at least some way helping um, the event to happen. She was involved, seems to be that she was involved in some sort of organizational role, had some kind of a role of authority. And, and the wine runs out, and as we've already said, this was like a major social embarrassment. She says to Jesus, they have no wine. And, and then Jesus says a peculiar thing. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I would not recommend that particular response to any time a woman asks you to do something. Um, if my mom, you know, had told me, like, hey, mow the lawn, or like, hey, you know, get dressed, and I said, you know, woman, what does this have to do with me? It's 10 a.m. on a Saturday. My hour has not yet come. It would not have ended well. The truth is, the word woman wouldn't have been seen as a sign of disrespect, like, you know, like it would have been in our culture. Um, but, but he wasn't calling his mom mom either. This wasn't a warm uh, thing to say. The, the word woman, the word just means woman. And it would have been cold and, and kind of a distanced way to refer to your mother. It, it Really, I think the point is that, that he was... Um, he was referring to her as he would anyone else. That, okay, if we're, if we're going to do this, like, you're actually going to, I, mean, I don't want to say it's like putting his mom in her, in her place, but it's certainly he, he's speaking to her not as a mother-son, but as, a, as Jesus and another human being. And a, and a, and a human being. So, so he uses the same word to refer to um, a woman, to the woman at the well in chapter 4. You know, so, so we might kind of, we, we could translate this as ma'am or, or miss, but we, some of it gets lost in translation. But, but then he says something even more peculiar. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now this is really something to pay attention to in John's gospel. As we go through John's gospel, you're going to want to pay attention to any time Jesus talks about his hour. Jesus is going to repeatedly refer to his hour throughout the book and how it has not yet come, and then you're going to want to pay special attention to when he says it, it, it has come. When it finally does come, it clear, it's clear that it's a reference to his crucifixion or, or to his passion, Jesus' death for the sins of humanity. We can imply, we can imply from, uh, from Jesus' response that Mary had you know, some indication that, that he could help with the, uh, the situation. So, but, but she's not being bossy. I don't, I don't read this as Mary being bossy. What I love about this interaction, actually, is what does Mary do? She gives Jesus the ball. She looks at the servants and says, all right, do whatever he tells you. Presumably, Jesus could have told the servants, you better go out there and tell them that they ran out of wine. That, that they ran out of wine. But, but he doesn't do that. We're told that there were six, six stone jars um, that were for the Jewish rites of purification. Um, this was ritual hand washing that would have taken place before a meal. And the jars were empty, which tells us that, that the ritual had already taken place. And there were six jars that each held 20 to 30 gallons. And so big jars um, equal big party. This probably was a fairly wealthy family. Now, note that, that Jesus tells them to fill the jars with water. Why would have they been filled with water the first time? 
because of purification, because of a purification washing that would have been part of the old covenant. Can you think of anywhere else in scripture where Jesus uses wine to signify a new covenant? Wine that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus told Mary, uh, communion, right? Jesus told Mary that his hour had not yet come. And then he, he does a sign that points to the hour. The sign, what does the sign point to? It points to what the hour of his crucifixion will accomplish, the purification of his people, which is certainly something that is caused to celebrate. We're told that the servants filled the jars to the brim, and I don't think we should go past that either. As I said before, the first half of the book of John is all about signs. When we get five chapters, uh, and then after the book of signs, we get five chapters of Jesus teaching his disciples um, that begin in John 13 with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Jesus becomes the suffering servant who fills the jars of grace, of God's grace, to the brim, to the point of overflowing. Remember a chapter ago we read, from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace, and now we see something filled to the brim that Jesus is going to instruct servants to distribute to others. He does the same thing with the washing of the feet. As I have loved you, you should love others. This short story is filled to the brim with symbolism. The servants take the wine to the host, and the host is a bit perplexed as to like where this wine come, has come from. I, I take this to mean that it's like he had almost figured out that they had run out of wine. It was like the last possible moment, and he was wondering if there was any more wine, and then it happens. He tastes like what is supposed to be like the reserves, like the back wine. Like, you had this in the back? He goes to the groom and says, wow, man. Most weddings, they serve the good wine first. And when everyone is you know, still in like a formal mood and saving the ceremony of all, that's when they serve the good wine. And then, you know, after the party gets going, that's when they bring out the sunset blush franzia, you know. But, but you know, you saved the best for last. You see, one of the things we need to keep an eye out for as we work through John is the tension of old and new. Wine is an excellent symbol for this because as we all know, old wine is good wine. It would be easy for us to think about how Jesus entered a Jewish context and brought an entirely new message, which of course he did. There is a, but there is a new covenant, a, a new foundation for the people of God to be built on, um, one that wasn't on the law, but this, this new covenant founded on grace. But on the other hand, Jesus clearly told us, he, he told us clearly that, that, that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to erase all of that. I came to fulfill it. Jesus wasn't just a prophet, he was Israel's Messiah. And again, John starts his gospel by drawing attention to the creation of the cosmos, not just the Jewish people. So what we see is that this new thing that God is doing, this new work that God is doing, has actually been in the works, according to John, since the beginning of time itself. You don't get more old than that. But when the fullness of time had come, like Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, when the jars had gotten to the brim, 
The water had gotten to the brim. God put on flesh and dwelled among his people in their midst. God dwelled in their midst and he is mighty to save. He dwelled in their midst like a well-aged wine. It would be a mistake for us to think of Israel as plan A and Jesus as plan B. Jesus was the plan all along. The stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Exodus, the kingdom, David, the prophets, even the exile, all of it was aging the wine that is now almost ready to be served. It's almost the hour of Jesus' passion where he, will, where he will go to the cross and die for the sins of humanity in an act of pure, saving love. It's almost the hour, but, it, but it's not quite the hour yet. For now, before, until then, Jesus is going to spend a few years with his disciples and his disciples are going to recount for us the things that went down in order that we might respond the same way those disciples did at the wedding. How did they respond? John tells us. What was the point of the whole thing? The disciples believed in Jesus. You see, it never really was about the miracle. It was about what the miracle pointed to, namely Jesus himself. And John tells us this. He, he, gives us, he gives it away. He tells us why he wrote all this stuff. He tells us at the end of his gospel that the, that the reason he was writing all of this stuff down was he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But, but these signs, signs like the water to wine at, the, at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, uh, this, these signs are written so that you, and when he says you, he, he means you, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you, that by believing, you may have life in his name. I said before that I don't know who I am apart from Amy, and that's by design. The reason why a wedding is an important symbol, an important symbol for our faith is because I don't know who I am apart from Jesus. I don't know who I am apart from Jesus. I, 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 I shouldn't have answers that come from other places other than Jesus. If I'm trying to figure out the, the deepest things of life, uh, the deepest questions that I have, how should I live? Who should I marry? Who should I spend my time with? All of that, well, 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 what, what, is, what would Jesus say? How would Jesus speak into this? Because, because I am his there's a, there's a mutual indwelling that we're going to see as John develops his gospel. Uh, I in Christ and Christ in me. When you look at me, the goal is that, that what, what sanctification is, as I draw closer to God, as I become a disciple following his way, I am becoming more and more of a new creation created now in the image of my Savior, Jesus Christ. As you know, this wasn't the last time that Jesus did something involving wine. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, we're going to take communion in a few minutes, we're reminded that, that on the night he was betrayed, he, he gathered his disciples and he took bread and, and wine. And he told them that these elements, they symbolized his passion, his body that was broken for them, his blood that was spilled so that they and all future disciples, Jew and Gentile, would come together in his name and build for his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. God is in our midst because he comes offering forgiveness and mercy. And that forgiveness and mercy that he offers is filled to the brim. 
You might be thinking, well, you know, I got a lot of awful, dark stuff there in my past. I don't know if he'd be willing to forgive me. I mean, have you ever gone to a party or a dinner and, and, and like people just cooked way too much food and, and you just all kind of stand around, well, I don't know who's going to eat all of this. That is Jesus' kind of meal. We are people defined by celebration and joy. We are people defined by the final picture that we see in the Bible of heaven and earth becoming one. Revelation puts it this way, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, remember he's going to rejoice over us with loud singing, a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, every tear from their eyes, and death itself shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because the former things had passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, King Jesus, says, behold, I am making all things new. That is why Jesus used the opportunity of a wedding to perform his first sign. That is what the sign was pointing to. Jesus came so that you and I might know that God's grace is filled to the brim. Those jars are overflowing with God's grace and God's love towards us. And that from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. And we're going to take communion now, the the Eucharist, the, the Mass, the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, we're, we're going to read the, the Nicene Creed together. One of the things that the, the creed says about the church is that we are apostolic. What does that mean? It's a heavy word. That means that, that what we do here today can be traced all the way back to Jesus and his apostles. Jesus pouring his life into disciples in order that they might believe, in order that they might in turn pour their lives into other disciples. And those disciples pour their lives into other disciples and on down the line, on down the centuries until we get to this room today. That is the 2,000-year tradition that we are a part of. A 2,000-year tradition that was built on centuries of the traditions of Israel before it, and of God who created this world in and through Jesus Christ before that. But the message, the message has never been more new than it is right now. That's the tension of old versus new. So you please stand and read as, uh, century, as, as churches throughout the done, have done throughout the centuries the reading of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, 
he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.